The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Loving Father, we thank you and we praise you for your love and your care for each of us. Father, we thank you that you are intimately acquainted with every single one of us. You, Father, you know, Father, the number of the hairs on our head. Father, you know how every cell functions and operates or doesn't function the way it's supposed to in each of our bodies. And Father, we know that our lives are completely in your hand. You are sustaining us and keeping us throughout this course of this life. And Father, we would lift up to you, dear friends and and family before you, Lord, we think about Natan and his mother-in-law uh, being taken to hospital. Father, we just ask you for peace for the family, for comfort. Father, we pray that you would bless and strengthen and encourage them in a difficult time. Father, we remember too, uh, Brother Jeff, and Lord, we just pray that the side effects from his treatment would stay away. Father, we pray that you would lift him up and encourage him and carry him through, Lord, in these difficult days. Father, we pray that his his focus, his gaze would be firmly fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would be finding strength and encouragement from the Scriptures. Father, we think, too, also of Peter, Lord, and, and for the issues with his heart. And we thank you, Lord, that the medications and him have seemed to have settled into a a healthy routine and, and things are going so much better. Father, we pray for the work that must be done in a few months on the internal defibrillator. And Father, we just ask you for your hand upon him. Keep him and sustain him, we pray, oh God. Father, we pray too for the mission field. Lord, we think about Chloe and her work over in Europe. And we pray, oh God, for your strength and your hand to be on her to protect her. Lord, we thank you that she has plans to be here in August and share something of the work that she is doing in in Europe. And we ask you, Lord, for traveling mercy for her, for safety. Father, we think about the Mosts and the Pyats and, and, Lord, so many on our list that are serving you in far-off fields. Father, we pray for your help and your strength for them. We pray, Lord, that you would meet the needs they have, financial and emotional and physical needs. Father, we think, too, of some of... Uh, the men that we are associated with that spend time traveling and preaching in other churches. And we think of uh, Ross and Lee and Brian. And Father, we ask you for them that you'd encourage their hearts as they serve you uh, away from their home churches. Father, we think too of uh, John and Marie up in Portland and Cameron serving with them. And Father, we pray for your hand to be on them, that you would strengthen them for the journey. You give them wisdom and grace. Lord, we pray for Cameron as he prepares messages. Lord, we know he is, has the opportunity to preach two weeks in a row. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would be with him and give him strength for the hour. Father, we pray that you would guide him in his preparation. Father, help him to see from the scriptures what you would have to say to the church up there, to encourage and strengthen their hearts, to challenge them with the truths of scripture. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. Father, we thank you for those ancient words that are indeed ever true. Father, we thank you that the Word of God has a power as we preach it and read and study and pray over the Word of God. It has a power to change us, to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, in the words of that hymn that, 
the song we were just singing. We have indeed come, Father, with open hearts. Oh, Father, we pray that the ancient words would impart and give strength. Father, we pray that those holy words of our faith would come to us. And Father, teach us more about the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that they would teach us the truths of our salvation. Father, as we consider something of Christ given as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, Father, we pray that you would just lift our gaze. Father, fill our hearts with joy as we see and hear more of your work uh, for us through him. Father, we thank you for what he has done. We thank you again, O God, as we have already this morning for the salvation that we have in Christ. And Father, now as we would seek to preach the word of God, Father, we pray that you would lead and instruct. Father, we pray again that my words would die at the edge of the television and that your voice would speak to everyone listening. Father, we ask you for fruit from this time together in the word and we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Well, we're back again in Isaiah 42, and I've been uh, teased a little bit about how many weeks I'm going to spend in this this passage, and and the plan is to spend this week, and then next week we'll uh, look at verses 8 and 9 and and finish this first of the servant songs, and then move on from there. But as we've been looking at this this, this, not a psalm, it's a song of Isaiah and seeing the structures before us. We, we thought and saw last week how he in those first four verses is speaking to the people about the servant. And then in verse 5, uh, it's, Isaiah writes and says, Thus says God the Lord. And he describes who it is that's speaking. And then in verses 6 and 7, he now speaks directly to the servant. And you say, well, who is talking? Well, the Lord God himself is talking. We notice that he's speaking to the servant. If you notice in verse 6 there, uh, four times the word you is used. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. All of those you words are in the singular. So he's speaking very clearly to the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that the servant in this text can only be the Lord Jesus Christ because no other man could be could come as a covenant for the people. No other human could accomplish all the things that are spoken of as the servant in this the text. But I want you to notice that he's, again, he's speaking to uh, different groups. Uh, these words are not just spoken to the Son for his benefit alone. In fact, the Holy Spirit has inspired Isaiah to preach and write these words. He wrote them and preached them, or more likely he preached them first, and then they were gathered and compiled into the finished text of Isaiah later. But he preached, first of all, to the 8th century Judahites. They were his own contemporaries. He uh, wrote them for the benefit of the 6th century uh, B.C. exiles, the people of Judah living in Babylon. Of course, we know from 2 Timothy 3.16 that he was inspired by the Spirit of God to write this text for our benefit also. But the thing is, we will only understand the significance of his words, the Spirit's words given through Isaiah, when we understand their significance to the original recipients. 
And so first of all, we have to figure out and, and discern from Scripture what was the situation of these original recipients. And if we were to read and study through Isaiah 1 and into chapter 2, we'd see there that those 8th century B.C. Judahites in Jerusalemites, there, we would see their rebellion against God. We would see their religious ritualism and open idolatry. We would see their injustice toward the poor, their self-satisfied arrogance and pride and drunkenness. And Isaiah sums it up in one of those verses and says, Their hearts are far from the Lord. They have broken the covenant of the Lord. God is going to bring judgment and virtually destroy the nation of Judah for their sin. It was what he promised he would do back in the law, back in Deuteronomy. We say there that he told them if they were not faithful, he would drive them out of the land and so on. But God will preserve a faithful remnant for his people. So Isaiah's mission as he goes to proclaim is both one of judgment and yet of hope at the same time. There's hope because God will preserve a faithful remnant of his people. <coughs> Excuse me. Like a gigantic oak tree that has been cut down. The tree, the log, lies dead on the forest floor. But out of that cut off trunk that stands still in the ground, a tiny oak sapling begins to grow again. It's a, the remnant of the Judahites. Now that little sapling that began to grow, the remnant was of course those 6th century exiles in Babylon. And that's where they were. And the remnant that was there were the ones that God had promised to preserve. And in fact, he was doing. So what is the Lord God talking about in our text in Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7? And let's just read it again to, to set our minds firmly in the text. In the text he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, as verse 8 begins. What exactly is the Lord God talking about in our text? And we could say with the title of the sermon is God's faithfulness to give his anointed servant. Now, what exactly is he saying about that gift? Well, one of the first things we want to notice is the authority of the Lord God to give his servant. If you notice in verse 6, he says in his opening words, I am the Lord. That is a statement of his name as a declaration of his authority over the servant. When the Lord brought Abram out of Ur of Chaldees and announced to him the covenant in Genesis chapter 15, he began with the words, I am the Lord. He stated his authority to make a covenant with uh, Abraham. In Genesis 28 verse 13, when God reaffirmed the words of the covenant to Jacob, he said, I am the Lord. Again, stating his authority. In Leviticus, I, I noticed this just finished reading through Leviticus in my regular readings. When the Lord was giving all those laws to the, Le the Levites, he repeated 49 times in that book, I am the Lord. Now, why should you obey these laws of the Lord? Because I am the Lord. That's what he kept saying to them. 
God who has just been described by Isaiah in Isaiah 42 and verse 5 as the all-powerful God now makes it clear in his calling of the servant. He is the Lord God. He is in authority even over him. Now we remember the Trinity God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I often demonstrate by making a triangle, and I often hold the triangle up like this, and I usually write the F up at the top for Father and Son and Spirit down lower. But that's actually very inaccurate. It should actually be a flat triangle, because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equal in their deity. They're all equally God. But there is an order within that equality and the Father is in authority over the Son. The Son submits in submission to the Father's authority. Now, what an incredible statement for these disobedient Judahites to hear. The Lord God in authority speaks to his servant who obeys him fully. And surely there's a rebuke in there for those who are not walking with the Lord and obeying him fully. Notice, secondly, the righteous nature of God's calling his servant. And we see that there. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. God calls the servant to his agreed responsibilities. A scholar and commentator by the name of Oswald states that there is nothing incidental or underhanded in this call. It is at the right time, in the right place, and for the right purposes. But there's something, excuse me, something more here than just timing. God's righteousness has three aspects. I like to think of these often when I'm thinking, when I see the word righteous in relation to God. God's righteousness is his being right, it's his doing right, and it's also his work of declaring others to be right as well. So, first of all, God's righteousness is his being right. God's very nature conforms to the highest moral standards, his own. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4, uh, the word goes, the rock, speaking of God, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So his state of being is just and upright. And secondly, God's righteousness is his doing right. God always does what agrees with his own infinite moral standard. In Genesis 18 and verse 25, you remember the scene. Abraham is there and the Lord God comes to him and he tells him what he's planning to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham looks at him and says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do that which is right? And of course the answer is yes, of course he will. Every work and word and promise that God endeavors to do is according to his own word, sorry, his own moral standard. It is right, it is righteous. And so God's judging and destroying almost all of Judah because of their sin is a righteous action. God's preserving of a remnant for himself was a righteous action. God's calling the servant to go as a covenant for the people was righteous in desire and plan and action. But you know, there's even more. If you would take your Bibles and go to the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 23 to 26, we would see there 
that God put forward Christ as a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the very end and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us into favor. He did that in order to show God's righteousness because in God's divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is one of the greatest statements of the gospel. It's a gospel, I think R.C. Sproul used to say, it's a gospel in a nutshell. It's almost a complete package of all the truth of the gospel in those words. If I was to restate Romans 3.26 in my own words, I would say, so that God might be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So God's righteousness, he calls the servant in righteousness. He calls him being righteous. His calling him is an act of righteousness. But even beyond that, his calling of the servant is contributing, or it's, it's part of his work to declare others righteous as well. So he calls the servant. And what's going to happen? He'll take him by the hand and keep him. He will give him as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And we're going to see what that means in just a moment. The Lord's righteousness is his work to declare others righteous. The work that he accomplishes through Christ in coming as a covenant, in coming to preach the truth, is that God might do the work through Christ that we, sinners, in looking to it by faith to God, might know the joy of forgiveness of sin and be declared righteous by God because of what Christ has done. He does the necessary work so good God could save all who believe in Jesus. Well, thirdly, we can see in our text the twofold purpose of God's gift of his servant. The first purpose, of course, is, uh, well, let's read it together again. It says in verse 6 there, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Now, I, I did notice that I will take you by the hand and keep you. I didn't ignore it. If you notice up in verse chapter 1, it's a very similar statement. And it's repeated for emphasis that God will be with him and help him and strengthen him and sustain him through all the work. But I want to focus on these two gifts here. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. He's giving them with purposes. The purposes are to be a covenant, number one, and a light, number two. So first of all, first purpose is Christ is given as a covenant to the people. We've been through this before, but it's just worth repeating to help us understand it and really grasp the truth of it. A covenant is an agreement formed or bound, written, if you like, in blood. The covenant parties agree upon the penalty of death to bind themselves to the terms of the covenant. A broken covenant resulted in the death of the offender. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham, promising him a seed and a son who Paul, centuries later, says refers to Christ. He says in Galatians 3, this is Paul, in Galatians 3, 16 to 18. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, 
and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul goes on, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So God makes a covenant with Abraham, promising him a son, a seed. And that, of course, we see from Paul's hand is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Exodus 29, try it again. In Exodus 19 to 24, we see how God makes another covenant with Israel at Sinai. It's mediated by Moses at the time, <coughs> excuse me, at the time when the law was given. But Judah and Israel, throughout all their years in the land, by their unfaithfulness and sin against God, broke that covenant. And that's what Isaiah 1 to 39 is all about. They're breaking the covenant and God's judgment on them because of it. In Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 32, it states that they broke the covenant, although I was their husband, declares the Lord. And the Lord is giving them a very beautiful, a very rich illustration, illustration of the language of the way their relationship was supposed to be. It was a covenant relationship, a bond made in blood. And yet God, speaking through Isaiah's pen, says they broke the covenant. But God, in faithfulness to his people and to Abraham, made a new covenant, which he also promised through Jeremiah. In that same passage, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, the Bible says... I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Number one, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And number two, I will be their God. And number three, they shall be my people. So God in grace, made a new covenant with the people of Israel because they had broken the old one. And into this new covenant, we Gentile believers are included. We're grafted in. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, this is the passage I always read when we go to the Lord's table. We'll do it again next week. In verses 23 to 26, Paul is writing to a Gentile church. And he recounts the Lord's Supper like this. In verse 25, he says, In the same way also he, that's Jesus, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And every time we share in communion, we are celebrating and remembering Christ in the basis or in the context of our covenant relationship that he has brought us into through his blood and sacrifice. We, Gentile believers, are included in the promised covenant. And, to get back to our text, in 42 and verse 6, we see, he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. And I would state that like this. Christ is the substance of this covenant. Um, I think it was Alec Motyer was writing about this. And he says, the substance here, that when he says, I will give you as a covenant, 
The idea behind that is that only in Christ are all the blessings of the covenant to be found. Being reconciled to God is only in Christ. Being declared right by God's estimation is only possible in Christ. Knowing God deeply and personally and intimately and being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's all part of the blessings that we have in that covenant relationship with Christ. Having a new heart, as uh, Jeremiah was speaking of in that text we read earlier, have a new heart given to us, having the law of God written on our hearts, every one of us knowing the Lord deeply and personally. All those things are the blessings that are found in Christ. Christ is the substance of this new covenant. To go on a bit more, to unpack what the Bible says about Christ in relation to the covenant, in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, Christ is the messenger of the covenant. He says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Christ came. He announced it. He mediates it. He instituted the covenant. He shed His blood to secure it. He is the substance and the messenger of the covenant. And of course, we see in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 9 and verse 15 that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. It says, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. You know, when Moses goes up the mountain with the stone tablets... And God writes the law on those stone tablets and He comes back down again and He brings the covenant relationship to the people of God and they say, all that God has commanded us, we will do. And Christ goes and He comes. One of those beautiful scenes in the Gospel, sitting up on the Sermon of the Mount. And uh, he's, He's preaching to the people of God, but mostly to the disciples who are right in front of Him. He gives them all of this new kingdom ethic, and He takes all the demands of the law, and He shows in the kingdom they are so much stronger. And then He shows Himself throughout His ministry as the only one able to keep all those demands of the law. He mediates a new covenant, fulfilling in Himself all the righteous demands of the law, and by His death... Paying the full penalty for our failure to keep them. He mediates a new covenant. He brings two parties. Us who are estranged from God and reconciles us to God. He mediates that relationship being brought together. And of course, Hebrews 9 verses 12 to 14. Christ's blood secured the new covenant. Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling, sprinkling, of, de, you know, sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's His blood. Not the blood of a bull or a goat. You can take every, every drop of blood from every bull and every goat that ever lived. And it wouldn't be enough to atone for one of our sins. But Christ, by His precious blood, has washed our conscience clean. 
Now we can stand before God with a clean conscience. The guilt has been removed. The sin has been paid for. And now we are free to serve the living God. In Ezekiel 37 verse 26, God promised the everlasting covenant of peace. I will make a covenant of peace with them. He's talking about the future. This is a little bit later, I believe, than when Isaiah was writing. It will make a covenant with peace of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. This new covenant that we are included in brings us into a secure everlasting, unalterable, blood-purchased bond with God through Christ. And Christ is the substance of it all. The Lord God says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. And He's designed this to bring His people back to Himself. And He's included all of us in that same covenant. It is in Him and only in Him that we will know such blessings. And to think, It just occurred to me as I was studying earlier for this to think that God before and even during Judah's judgment, even as Isaiah is preaching these words to the people of Judah and Jerusalem and judgment's about to fall or is already falling, God is already announcing to them that He is going to send the servant as a covenant to bring the people back to Him. It gave them hope that God was not finished with them yet. Well, that's the first purpose, was as a covenant. And the second one we'll look at a lot quicker. He was to be a light for the nations. And that phrase uses images of light that are clearly connected to God who is the light. In Psalm 27, verse 1, the Bible says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? God's way, God's ways are a light to guide one in the right path. In Isaiah 51 and verse 4, he says, Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Justice, by the way, as we saw a couple weeks ago, is another way of saying the truth. I will set my truth for a light to the peoples. God's righteous salvation is also seen as the light. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, the latter half, he says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Notice what he's saying. Isaiah 49, verse 6. I will make you, he's speaking to the servant again, as a light for the nations, as truth proclaimer, truth embodied to the nations, that my salvation may reach just Israel. No. Praise God. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The Lord has called Christ His anointed servant in righteousness to come as God's light, the light of the gospel. What what does John 14, 6 say? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when he gives them as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations, he gives him as the substance of the covenant in his blood, mediated by him and all the rest of it. And he gives them as a light, a light for the truth of God proclaimed to the nations. 
Christ the Lord's servant came as the embodiment of God's truth, the good news of God's salvation from wrath. Christ came and preached and taught and explained and parabled the truth. He revealed the truth of the gospel of God. Then he went as the covenant sacrifice to secure that salvation that he had been preaching about with his own blood. What grace, what love that God the Father has bestowed upon us. Even in the midst of their judgment, Isaiah begins to preach these passages. Don't forget, this happened during Isaiah's lifetime. This, the judgment of God was still falling upon Judah when he was saying these things. Even though it's, it's directed at the latter exiles, the people of his own time were hearing this. And they were hearing of God's grace even in the midst of judgment that was falling. God was going to send his anointed servant, his chosen servant, to be a covenant to the people and a light to the nations. Well, fourthly, we can see the result of God's gift of his servant. And he will see there, we'll just look at it very quickly. He will open blind eyes and he will set prisoners free. He will come and the truth of God will be preached that those who are blinded by sin might be set free so that those who are blind to the glory of God in the face of Christ might hear the truth, might receive the salvation of God and might see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what this is all about. That the blind might see. That we might see who Jesus is. He came as a covenant and the light of God's truth that we might see the glory of God. He came to open blind eyes. And He came to set the prisoners free. So that those who are imprisoned and bound under God's wrath will be set free. So that those who are imprisoned in the domain of darkness will be set free and brought out of that and delivered into the kingdom of God's dear Son, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. What a wonderful truth. What grace God has displayed to His own people. What grace that God has included us in all this. I remember as a young believer... And it's a little NIV Bible. And I literally wore it out. I read through it so many times it just fell apart completely one day. And uh, I remember reading through and just I didn't know any of these fancy theological terms. I just thought it was so cool that God had His chosen people in the Old Testament. He hit the New Testament. And all of a sudden, uh, the Gentiles, all of us are included in all these blessings and all these promises that God gives to His people. Isn't a wonderful thing that the truth of God is being declared so that the salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. Surely Australia would be considered the ends of the earth from Jerusalem and Judah. And he came to open blind eyes. What a wonderful thing it was that day when I first saw Christ. First understood who he truly was. And my eyes were opened. And I saw him as the savior of my soul. I saw him as the only one that could set me free and open my eyes. And now I just rejoice every time I read the scriptures. Spent some time this morning and reading and praying and just working through some of these things and just such a joy to know that my eyes have been opened, that I have been set free by God's grace. Set free because Christ was given as a covenant and Christ was given as a light to the nations. Well, God in faithfulness has given His anointed servant as a covenant and a light so that we might be included in His covenant and know God to be His people and He our God. 
What do we do in response to these great truths? Well, remembering those three circles of the recipients and the readers of Isaiah's uh, book, and remembering that the key to our understanding, the significance of the text to us, and what, what message, what purpose the text has for us for today, we have to understand its significance to them. So what was God's message to the 8th century listeners, Isaiah's own contemporaries? Listen, their unfaithfulness cannot prevent God's faithfulness to them. Their unfaithfulness to God would not stop him being faithful to them and to himself. They had sinned, but God is not finished with his people. Although there was surely coming great judgment and exile, God will, in faithfulness, preserve and restore a remnant. And how do they know? How would they know that God will do this? Because as I says, He is God the Lord. He is all-powerful to do it in Isaiah 42 and verse 5. He has the authority to do it in Isaiah 42 and verse 6. He is the righteous God who will do it in Isaiah 42 and verse 6. And you know what? In Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 to 10, hundreds of years earlier, Moses gathered the people on the plains of Moab before he went up the mountain to die and they went over the river to occupy the land. He told them, he promised them in his word that when they were unfaithful, God would drive them out. But when they repented and sought forgiveness, God would bring them back. And God did exactly what he promised. God is faithful. What response was God seeking from those 8th century listeners? I'm convinced that God wanted them to return to Him in repentance and in faith toward the Lord their God. God's message through His prophets is often, if not always, return unto Me, for I am the Lord your God. The prophecies were not given as a whodunit for the end times. The prophecies were given to cause men to repent and turn back to the Lord their God. What about the 6th century exiles? They're hearing this 200 years later, way off in Babylon. God in faithfulness kept His promises to Judah. God kept His promise to preserve a remnant. That was them. They would have opened the scroll and realized, hey, wait a minute, guys, this is us. He's talking about us now. God will still keep His promises. The servant will, sorry, the servant will also come. So the promise they're reading here, that the servant will come, that was still in the future. So, they, so their response must be that they must renew their faithfulness to the Lord their God. They must trust in the Lord to keep His future promises. They could go back through their own history. And they could see God's promises kept all through those years. They must trust the Lord to keep the future promise to send this servant of the Lord as a covenant and a light to the nations. They must also not embrace the culture, the faith, the pagan idolatry of the nations among whom God had left them for the exile. So they must be patient and faithful. God will keep His promise to bring them back to the land. God had not finished with them yet. And finally, at the very end of all this, what is the message of God for us? Ooh, what's this text have to say for us today? And listen, just as God was faithful to them, so God is also faithful to us, 
His people today. He has bound Himself to us in a covenant relationship secure in the blood of Christ. God's discipline of us which surely happens, and it's painful for a time, but it's sure proof that God has not finished with us. God in grace and faithfulness kept all those promises. He has promised to send Christ back in power and great glory. And how do we know that God will do this? It's the same way. Because He is the Lord our God. He has the power, Isaiah 42 and verse 5, to do it. He has the authority of Isaiah 42 and verse 6. And in righteousness, Isaiah 42 and verse 6 again, He will do it. Christ will come. Every promise that God made about Christ has been kept, except for the ones at the very end, obviously. He will keep them all. He will finish the work that He began. So at last, that's the message What does God desire from us in response? How should we respond? And I've given you a number there. There's there's quite a few responses. And you will have to think through these things. And I urge you to do that. To stop and consider, how does this apply to me? Number one, return to the Lord your God. If you have begun to walk away from the Lord, if you failed in your walk with the Lord, if you've begun to drift away from the Lord into sin, if there's been an erosion in your life, a sliding away from God, a leaving off of the pursuit of holiness and righteousness, then I urge you to return. Return to the Lord with tears and sorrow and repentance. Nobody is too far gone for the Lord not to restore. Secondly, trust the Lord our God. Like exiles and aliens in their day, we are living in a foreign land. Let's throw ourselves entirely upon the Lord our God in faith, for He alone can and will see us through to the end. But praise the Lord, Christ is coming. It could be any day. It could be before this video even reaches the airwaves and you see it on Sunday. Trust the Lord. In the face of whatever you're going through, trust the Lord. He keeps His promises. Be faithful to the Lord our God. I mentioned in my prayer earlier about half-heartedness. Let's serve the Lord our God with our whole heart. The, the line that keeps coming back to my mind as I've thought through this throughout the day and prepared to preach is that they, their hearts were far from the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, lament and grieve and weep over your and my half-heartedness before the Lord. God grieved over the Judahites' half-hearted service. Jesus in Revelation 3 grieved over the lukewarm church. Remember Caleb and Joshua? They wholly followed the Lord. Remember Christ tossing the temple tables? Zeal for the Lord's house had consumed Him. May God give us a wholehearted zeal for the Lord. I know some people might think, oh, just a little bit of radicalness there. No, 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 no. Far better to burn out in zeal for the Lord than to rust out in half-hearted complacency. Be zealous for the Lord. Give thanks to God for His immeasurable grace toward us. Number three, He sent Christ to be our covenant between us and Himself. Rejoice! That this is an eternal covenant. We'll never lose that salvation. Nothing can take you from Christ. Rejoice in the Lord, brother and sister. We're included in God's covenant of salvation, which was wrought by Christ 
through his blood. Number four, get busy. <laughs> get busy. Christ began his work. <coughs> Excuse me. He began his work as a light shining to the nations. And you know what he did? He went home and he left us without assignment to take the message of the gospel around the corner and around the world. Get busy continuing Christ's word to bring the gospel light to the nations. Just as God in grace gave Christ to be a covenant and a light, so also in grace God has given us the church of Jesus Christ to proclaim the light of the truth of the gospel of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of His name. He was God's gracious gift to us. And God is continuing His work through His people. Little Christs, you and me. He's given us that great role to go out and proclaim the truth of the gospel to the nations. For the glory of his name. You and I, we got to get busy like the schoolboy making the grade. Because time, my brothers and sisters, is slipping away. Get busy. And the fifth one, the last one, pray. Pray with great determination before the Lord. Pray. Now, I know this may not be the right thing to do in a sermon, but... Last couple of days, um, after a conversation I had, my mind kept going back to verses 2 and 3. And I want to just take the time to just do a U-turn or a left turn in the middle of the sermon at the very end. I want to go back to verse 2 and 3 of Isaiah 42. The verse says, actually, just verse 3, A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Listen. God is faithful with his people. The Lord's anointed will not break a bruised reed. The Lord's anointed servant will not, will not snuff out, extinguish a smoldering wick or flame. No marriage is too far gone that God cannot restore it. No backslider is too far gone that God cannot bring them home. No illness too far advanced that God is unable to heal. We saw that this week in one of our sisters, an, an amazing event that happened. No person is too great a sinner that God cannot save them. Pray. Pray because God is faithful to His people. Pray because God the Almighty, God the All in authority, God the Righteous One can do great works. Marriage, it seems like it's almost gone, like a tiny little flame on a candle that once burned hot and bright. Christ won't snuff it out. Pray with all great diligence. Pray that God will restore it and fan it back into life. You've lost a brother, a sister, a friend. Once who, one who once walked with the Lord, but now no longer walks with the Lord, has walked away completely. He's still alive. He's still open to hear the gospel. He's still able to listen to the sound of the biblical teaching taught. God is faithful to His people. Brothers and sisters, pray. Pray with all your heart before the Lord. That, that backslider who some will write off and say he's too far gone, that God can't bring him home. Pray that God will fan that little tiny glow into a bright flame again. No illness is too far advanced that God cannot heal. No person too great a sinner 
that God cannot save. There, we all have people in our life. We think that God just seems so far beyond the reach of the gospel. Pray, brothers and sisters. Pray and plead with God. The servant is the one who won't crush those out and won't extinguish them. He won't break the reed so it's unable to be used. He is the one who can coax into life. Pray. Pray, brothers and sisters. Well, let's just do exactly that. Loving Father, we thank you and we praise you this evening, this morning, Lord, uh, Sunday morning. We thank you, Lord, for the message that you have given us. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the anointed servant of the Lord. Father, we thank you that he is your gracious gift to your people. A gift given in righteousness. A gift given as an act of righteousness. A, give, a gift given that the work that must be done, that we could be declared righteous, would be completed. Father, we thank you that he was given as a covenant to the people. And Father, we just thank you for your grace and your love to us, that you have included us in that covenant. And Father, we thank you that that relationship can never be broken. What a joy. What a delight, O oh God, to know that can, we can never be taken out of your hands. We're absolutely secure. He has secured that relationship with His own blood. That blood that washes our conscience clean. And we have no guilt before You. Father, we thank You for such love and such grace. Father, we ask You this evening that You would just be with the people of God. Father, we pray that You would encourage their hearts in these difficult days. Father, keep us on our knees, praying and pleading with You for Your help. Lord, we ask you all these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. For a benediction this, this, uh, this morning, when you're listening to it, keep making that slip. Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all. We'll see you very soon.